0: were in the book of Proverbs. And if we were to sum up our time in the book of Proverbs, you might put it under the banner of live this way, experience these results. So we thought about hard work. Producing these sorts of things. We thought about how you gain and spend your wealth. Producing this kind of a life. We thought about how you use your words. And those things producing a, a general. And that's under the whole banner that Keith introduced. Of if you fear the Lord. You will be wise. Now after four weeks of that. And there were lots of other topics. That we could have addressed in the book of Proverbs. But they all would have taken relatively the same approach. It could almost feel a bit like an equation. Or if you took it too rigidly, it might feel like a promise. But each week we tried to make sure that you didn't hear it as a promise so much as a principle, and that's because we knew that the book of Ecclesiastes was coming second. We moved from Wisdom 101 to Wisdom 201, where in the book of Ecclesiastes for the last three weeks, we've actually heard not so much live this way, experience these results, but... Really? Are you sure? Because it doesn't seem like that's always the way life works. And in some ways, this kind of reflects the way that we make our way through life. When you're young and you're going to school, right? At some points, two points for many, you're called a sophomore, a wise fool someone who's learned some things, but if they cling too tightly to the little bit of knowledge they have, they actually wind up being very foolish. And you've probably met people at the beginning of degrees who have way more confidence than those that graduate with those degrees. Learn a little bit of Greek and it's a dangerous thing, right, Right, Michael? Why? Because you don't know the nuances of a language. If you want to take your elementary understanding of anything, then, well, hey, you know, Go to WebMD, do a Google search, and then go inform your doctor of everything you now know, right? There's no wisdom in this life. Sadly, Proverbs can have that kind of effect if we are wise fools coming through that. If we stop at Wisdom 101 and we come away feeling like I'm going to do this and get these guarantees then, I don't know, just stop there for a moment and have a kid or two. See how well that works. Raise your kid exactly the way you think you're supposed to. Ignore all your failures when you're trying to make this argument. But, you know, hey, I raised a child in the way, and when they got old, they departed from it. God lied. Proverbs was a lie. Well, that's because... Wisdom 201, the book of Ecclesiastes, has helped us to see the book of Proverbs were principles. They weren't promises. And if anything else, what we have learned through uh, death and through time and through chance and injustice and through the testimony of the preacher saying, I tried to work as hard as I could. I tried to enjoy as much as I could. I went with sex and I went with drugs and I went with everything that my time could offer me by way of entertainment. And it was meaningless. Not quite meaningless, right? We've got this one slide where we looked at the different vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. But the word vanity sometimes sounds like, you know, self-indulgent, important, somebody looking at them, narcissistic kind of qualities. But that's not really what Ecclesiastes is saying. It's not just saying that life is, you know, arrogant or self-focused. And it's not quite saying that it's meaningless or even futile, which are other different things. One of the things we said in the very beginning of this was that, oddly enough, the message is probably closest in its translation to what the actual word means. So many things are vapors. Not just vanities. They're smoke-like. They're confusing when you walk through them. They look solid, but when you try to actually get your arms around them, they kind of disappear from your grasp. They're to be enjoyed because they're beautiful, but they're not supposed to be relied on. And so there's so many things that he said are that way. Yes, work usually produces a good life, but sometimes it doesn't. Wisdom usually leads to a good life, but sometimes it doesn't. And so after three weeks, you might have been feeling, to use the other analogy that we had, that we've been led to the the side of this great canyon. And the preacher said, I want you to look out and stare down death. And how time will forget you all. And how life is unfair. And chance ruins so many of your, your hard works. And now jump. No, don't. That's what we're going to look at today. The the end of the matter, if we've been through the tag team of time and death, the ineptitude of pleasure and work, the certainty of chance and injustice, and we've seen all these things as seeming solid but are actually vapor-like, the question is, well, then what are we actually doing in this world? It used to be that you'd talk about midlife crises for people. That's about the moment that people had invested enough into their lives and thought that things ought to work out that way. And sometimes for some people it does. But for many, I tried hard in my marriage and it didn't work the way I wanted. I was honest and true at work and other people got promoted ahead of me. I poured myself into stuff and it just didn't work. How am I supposed to feel about this? Well, the good news is, midnight crises, We've now been joined by the whole generation behind us. There is probably more being written about quarter life crises right now, especially coming through the mountain of college debt that arrives on the back of graduates with a job market that dried up. The last decade in particular has been written. COVID is obviously just, you know, kind of thrown everything out the window. But there you go. Chance and injustice. The ineptitude of government, right? No matter your perspective on it, don't worry, we found it in the book of Ecclesiastes. The point is, there's no promises. And so wisdom, it seems, is learning the principles of life, 101, while also appreciating the fact that things are more complex than we could understand. It's 201. But if there are no guarantees, then why should I keep doing stuff? That's where we want to kind of end today. And so what we're looking at today is the way not to jump into this abyss. But it's often been said, and I remember my my professor saying this uh, as I was getting a degree in counseling, he would say, look, it takes no skill to be able to diagnose a problem. It takes no godliness to see that something's wrong. Go to a restaurant and eat some food, and if one ingredient is spoiled or messed up, everybody's going to know. Not just those with the most discerning palate, not those with advanced degrees in cooking. Everybody's going to know that something's wrong. Our world is very aware that something's wrong, that life under the sun, to use the preacher's language, is spoiled and tarnished and broken in some ways. Listen, listen, this is a review of a movie that just came out called Everything Everywhere All at Once. Refusing to deny nihilism outright, it, the movie, argues that the feeling of worthlessness and apathy that comes with the philosophical concept of nihilism can be combated by embracing absurdity, losing your ego, and finding empathy in our shared mortal connection. Let that sink in. In such a meaningless universe, the love that Evelyn, the protagonist of the movie, shares with her daughter and husband, is the source of true meaning. Finding mutual understanding and acceptance in their shared experience of the absurdity of modern life. This was one of the better reviews of that movie. Did you read the second paragraph? Did you hear it? Because you hear this all the time. Because there's no God, which is the general assumption of this world. Or because whatever you want to say about God ultimately has no meaning or no definition or no purpose. So we're supposed to just basically treat everybody who's an atheist or everybody who's a polytheist or everybody who's religious in any sort of way as though they've got the same access to truth, which means basically nothing. If that's the assumption of life, if there is no outward definition to meaning, then what do you get? You get every Disney movie ever. Every Pixar film ever. You're supposed to reject what's out there, find meaning from within. You're supposed to be able to create things, and that's exactly what this last paragraph says, right? In such a meaningless universe, the love Evelyn shares with her daughter and husband is the source of true meaning. Is the movie, which is not necessarily one to recommend, just to say this isn't me going saying, yeah, go watch everything everywhere all at once. But it is a pretty good... Sample of what's out there, this concept of meaninglessness, it really is the natural philosophical outworking from everything that that we're being taught and our kids are being taught if they go out into school, biologically. There's either been so much time, or if so much time doesn't give us a world produced by chance, then we need so many universes that could, you know, in parallel ways, lead us to this experience that we've got right now. If there's no outside source of meaning, if there's no outside source of, like, actual creation and and a sense of, hey, I made this for this reason, and this is the way this world works, if we have to wipe that off the face of everything, then we just need Tons of time to be able to get to the place that chance could have arrived here. And what is that? That is meaningless. All we are, to use a decades-old line, is dust in the wind. We're stardust coming together, forming other stars that essentially have their little life cycle and then blow up and become stardust again. And we're just part of that. Is that wisdom? On the diagnostic side, absolutely. That's what the preacher's been trying to tell us for a while. Guys, time will forget you. Mountains that remain will forget you. And if you think that what you've built is only important because it has to last forever, maybe you're not doing things the way that you think. we inherited a project of a house. Bought it from the bank a while back, and the guy who had done all the work, we met him, and he put an amazing amount of work into this one staircase in one of our rooms. It was well-constructed in terms of the way that it looked, but every stair tread was a different height, so it made it really unpredictable to know where you were going as you were making way down those stairs. We lived with it for 10 years, and we thought, what is wrong with this thing? Until I measured out the heights of it and thought, Oh, that's why you feel like you're going to fall all the time on this thing. And so we we took it out. We now have a garage filled with this guy's work because all the pieces of wood, some are burning in the back of our place, probably still because it was a big fire. And some, though, are just sitting there trying to figure out what are we going to do with this? That was his work. I'd imagine that when he got done with it, he looked and thought, this will be here forever. My son spoke wisdom to me. I've told you this story before. This was when we were renovating another house. And Jace, uh, or Josiah came in. I think it was Josiah. we won't credit Josiah. It might have been Zach. It was wise. Whoever, whichever one of my wise children said this, They came in while I was, you know, nicked knuckles and sweating and a little just covered with sawdust. I'm feeling kind of that same sense of accomplishment. We have eliminated the the poor design, and we've now, you know, come and built this. And Josiah, let's just say Josiah, came in and said, does it bother you that in about 10 years somebody else is going to rip this out? (laughs) Like, well, it does now. Why am I doing something if it has no promise of permanence? Have you ever felt that? Yeah. (laughs) If If you haven't, go watch the old Bob Vila and his home improvement shows. They get done with something and it is well done in classic 80s style. And now anything on HGTV is revisiting those places and people are gagging. Oh my gosh, I couldn't live with this. The same house being celebrated 30 years ago. Or if you want something a little more temporary, just go back and look at the way that some of us dressed 10 years ago. I mean, I guess I probably look like this. But fashion is this way. Life is this way. So the preachers had his say. The guy who gathered everything together, introduced the book in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 2. Then he let the preacher go for a long time. And what Zoe read to us from Ecclesiastes was the end of the preacher's words and the final summary. That's where we're going to park ourselves. But listen to one more quote before we do. This is actually written from a Christian, and he says, how do we break through to people who live in a culture that has become so efficient at diluting itself into believing that there's no ultimate overall and universal significance to human existence. How do we communicate the urgency of a cure to a people convinced that there is no disease? How do we communicate the need for divine forgiveness in a culture where the very notions of moral sin and guilt have become virtually meaningless and where the Christian faith is viewed as the least desirable religious option, the choice of the intolerant and the new neanderthals among us. There Feel that? I have. It has become normal, and I've only been doing this for about 15 years. But it has become normal to not have the experience that I had in the beginning when somebody said, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, yeah, it's been a while since I've been at church. And the, the, the immediate tone would be like apologetic. I was raised in the church. I've been thinking about going back. It's probably time for me to think, well, you'd be more than welcome at our church. You know, we'd love to have you. We meet in this school. We meet in this plaza. We meet now in this building. You know, the the kind of invitation you could give was usually given in the beginning. This is only 15 years ago. To the apologetic, almost. I have met more people who have given me the equivalent of Oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, Sue says, well, I was, I was a homemaker. I, I taught my children. I raised them at home. I have a virtual army out there right now that I've basically raised. Oh, that's nice. You know, I've never thought that motherhood was really all that necessary. Who would say that? Oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, my husband and I were both doctors. In fact, it's, it's nice for him to be known as uh, Dr. Chen's husband sometimes because that's always kind of nice, you know? That's what we do for, oh, that's nice, you know, but I've, I've, you know, I've, I've got some vitamins that I take, and so I've never really ne- thought that doctors were all that necessary. Have you ever had somebody, like, say that to you about your career? That's all I get anymore about being a pastor. You know that? I don't get the apologetic sense of things. I get people coming to me and saying, "Hey, you're a pastor." Yeah, I, I had a guy. He called me and asked if we could meet. We we we, we sat down. We met, and and basically he told me, "Yeah, I've not thought the church or, or pastoral ministry was really all that important." Well, what you're telling me about the rest of your life—that makes sense. <laughs> I feel the the you know, the impact of that on your life, but. But it's so bizarre. He didn't apologize. He didn't like, I I didn't turn that around and tell him his career was meaningless. But generally speaking, I am hearing that more and more. This is the world in which we live. A Christian faith is viewed as the least desirable religious opinion. The, sorry, option, the choice of the intolerant and the new Neanderthals among us. But he closes with, it may not be as hopeless as it seems. That's what I hope this last bit of Ecclesiastes does for us. Is it just arms us to live wisely in the world that has been described as we have seen it for these last three weeks, but then to ask, what ought I to say into that culture and what ought I to show into that culture? What can I be confident of despite the fact that I live on the edge of this precipice that I don't want to jump into? I don't want to despair over but I want to be wise knowing that this is the world. What do we want to do? We want to remember this first thing. One, despite time's finality, our days actually echo a real joy. Right? Despite the fact that time takes away every joy from us, all throughout this book, and we kind of jumped into this last week at the very end. I told you it was a teaser for what was coming, right? The despair of where he was going. And then he was like, oh, but actually have a good drink. Enjoy a good meal. Like, why? How? Here's why. Because as believers, we know this. Despite the fact that time is final, there is a real joy that our days can have echoes of. I'm just going to read to you for a little bit. Listen to the way that this kind of begins in verse in chapter 12. But then we're going to jump back through the book a little bit because I want you to hear it again. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. <clears throat> Somewhere between verses 8 and 9 is when the preacher ends and the, the collaborator, the guy who's brought all this together, the, oh, the real author of the book in one sense, he begins to speak. And he says, besides being wise, the, people, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great, with great care. The preacher sought to find, here is his first phrase, his words of delight, If you've been reading this book, you might have thought, this has not been delightful, man. This has been despairing. What's wrong with you? Well, there have been words of delight. Listen to some of these, okay? Chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I saw is from the hand of God. This is one of a few different synonymous phrases that he uses that says, in the middle of this, God's given you something. And he he likes eating and drinking, but it's not just that he's, you know, given himself over to it and then said, this is totally meaningless. He still says in the middle of it, the eating and drinking and finding enjoyment in his toil is from God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Chapter three, verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also he's put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to, here it comes again, be joyful and do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, since this is God's gift to man. Now that Beginning, we're going to revisit uh, chapter 3 because chapter 3 is the the old turn, turn, turn song if you remember that one, right? To everything, there is a season, turn, turn, turn. We'll get back there. But that's what he's referring to when he says he's made everything beautiful in its time. Is everything permanently joyful? Permanently enduring? No, not in any way. But in its season, it can be really nice. And so there can be echoes of real joy in the middle of labors that fade away. Moreover, chapter 3, verse 20, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun and the few days of his life that God has given to him for this is his lot everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil because, here's the phrase again, this is the gift of God. Now it's not permanent, but it's a gift. Chapter 3, verse 20, this is where we were as well. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. Go, remember this, Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has approved what you do. Then he he adds to it. Let your garments be always white. Let Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion. The guy's back and forth, but in the middle of the darkness, he's saying there are little things that are actually, it is your vain life. But man, it's your vain life with her. It's your vain life with him. It's your vain life with that food. So enjoy the gift of God that comes from it. Chapter 11. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life or vanity. And then he comes to this. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of grinding is low and one rises up with the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song brought low. What what is is going on with this guy? I'm going to be pretty sure the octogenarians among us, they got it. Maybe the septuagenarians among us. You 70, 80 year olds, you you're hearing some metaphors here? Grinders and windows and all that kind of stuff. Senses are fading. The body's not working. The, The grinders are few. The teeth are falling out. Hey, there's a season where you got your teeth, where you can see, where you can hear some things. So enjoy it. Why? Because it ain't going to last. And he goes on and on and on about how it's not going to last. He continues, verse 5. They are afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the street. Before the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. That's all what came before. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. But what was his point right before that like long dirge about death? It was this. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Chapter 12, verse 1 Before the evil days come and the years draw near, which you say, I have no pleasure in them. Just what do you, what do you remember? There are days of pleasure. I think that's what he meant when in verse 10 he says, the preacher sought to find words of delight. So, how are we as Christians? supposed to interact with that interspersed among all that we've also read. Well let me, let me give you an analogy like I said we've been working on this house right we, We've we've been working on this room in particular stairs are out some new stairs are kind of going in we've got some new carpet because we had a leak over Christmas same day leak here at church leak in our house. It was, uh, that was a cold snap right there. And our pipes froze as well. Well, you know, we wanted to do a real rush job. And so by ju- you know, July, we've decided to get some new carpet for that room. <laughs> but what would happen if we get done with this project and the kids are ready? We're like, okay, let's get some furniture. And I'm like, no, no furniture. I mean, we got to move on to the next job. Because all that needs to happen is the things that are broken need to get fixed. And that's the way it is. You have somebody over to your house and you're like, hey, get off my carpet because I just had to clean that to get ready for you coming over here. Or you're raising your kids and you're like, kids, the only thing that matters is obedience. The only thing that matters is that we do things the right way, that we impress all the people out there. Do you feel the absence in that kind of a perspective of the wisdom that the preacher is actually calling for? No matter what you're building, it's for the enjoyment of it. The lack of permanence isn't just something that happens to houses or to cars. It happens in our world in so many different ways. I taught for 10 years in middle school. And I mentioned before that what we would do is we would go through two or three year cycles with kids meaning they came in, I taught 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. In the beginning, I would get the 6th graders, they'd come in, I'd have them for 7th grade and 8th grade in my homeroom. I I taught at different grade levels, but that was the way that we kind of just tried to build camaraderie between the teachers, and we we had these homerooms for three years. Well, I cycled through one group of three, and the next year when I started with my 6th graders, those 8th graders, now ninth graders, they forgot me. They moved on into high school, and they didn't come back and say, like, Mr. Land, remember all of our good memories. If they saw me at all, they'd tell me about all their new teachers. And I'd think, well, well, that's not the way this was supposed to go. I've been teaching for three years, but I figured I'd be the best teacher ever. I'd be the most memorable teacher ever. I would be the one you would remember, and you would say, all hail Darren, the teacher of the ages, right? Well, then I figured, well, there was something defective with that group of kids. And so, you know, it was time to get another group. And so I invested myself into these 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. And what happened? Same old thing. We recycled them up into high school. And they met all the fascinating people up there. And then we were gone. Well, after that, it got a little bit... More difficult. They did something else with the sixth graders. They wanted to keep the sixth graders always together, you know. And so I didn't get sixth graders. I got seventh graders the next year. And then I only had two years to impress. And I tried that around. And that was eight years into teaching. And by the time of my 10th grade, yeah, I was just like, well, this is, forget this. What's the joy in teaching kids if I'm not going to be the best teacher ever? That's, that's sick, isn't it? But that's the sickness that happens when we're not living wisely the way that we can think. Despite the fact that things are not going to be permanent, that we're not going to be the one who's hailed in heaven, there's joys to be found in hanging out with people and having people over, fixing up a house so we can get dirty, cleaning something just so that the dishes can get used again. There's joy in living life. But it's not a perfect joy. It's the echo of a final joy. Did you hear the difference between what Zoe read from Psalms and the way that the preacher talked? That Psalm was about delight, but delight given from God and then returned back to God. It was worshipful because there was a cycle to it. It wasn't supposed to come and end in the swamp of my world. You ever been in a body of water like that? All inlet, no outlet? This is the swamp of pleasure that he's been talking about, but it's not supposed to be that way. Things are supposed to come from to God, and I'm supposed to return gratitude back to God. I enjoy it while I can. We need to live that way. The world doesn't. And we can. But more than that, we need to not just sort of show this to the world. We need to say these things to the world. You are going to, if you have ears to hear, you are going to find echoes of disappointment and despair so many times when you're talking to people in the world I was talking to Zach's new neighbor the other day and we were just talking and all of a sudden he heard this bird call and he goes oh that's a ruby crested you know black topped beak bird or something like that I don't know what he was talking about why? because I don't have ears for that stuff I heard a bird and I was like bird (laughs) I got my general sense of the animal kingdom down He's like, yeah, we haven't had those things around. They're the cutest little things. And I'm like, oh, you need to talk to Leila. Because Leila's a birder. She's getting that ear for what things sound like. And if you've been in Ecclesiastes here for these four weeks with us together, hopefully you're getting kind of a similar sense of, I want something, but it's not satisfying. You are going to hear that all the time in other people. And you can help them enjoy this world, but not become stagnant in it. You can show them what it means to return gratitude back to God and encourage them to do the same. That's just the first thing that we've seen here, though. The second thing, or otherwise we're going to be two hours into this message, is that despite life's futility, our souls still crave a deep truth. There are truths in this world, and I'm not going to park as much in some of these, but listen to the way that the the, the guy at the end kind of summarizes the preacher's words, right? The preacher sought to find words of delight. Uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. This is the kind of thing to read over summer, not like at a back-to-school session, you know, necessarily. But it is helpful to remember. How does he view knowledge? He uses it, he feels it's like a sharp stick. That's going to move you in a direction, but it's not necessarily always going to comfort. These words have been poking us, haven't they? Ow, I don't like thinking about that. That's not, that's not pleasant. One of the most stark ones that I've often mentioned at funerals is that at one point he said, there's more joy in going to the house of death than to the place of feasting. There's more joy in the moment of mourning than there is at the arrival of a new birth. Like, what is wrong with you, dude? That is... Not the way I've seen things, you know, lived out in this life. And he said, no, no, no. It's because this is the end of all man. And so the wise will take it to heart. That's where we're heading. And so everybody that's celebrating is going to die. Everybody who's born is going to die. And if that's the way you're heading, it's wise to think that way. Ow, that kind of hurts. Could you stop poking me? No, he says. Because you need to move toward truth. And life in this fog is very delusional. It is so easy to be thinking that what we're building is permanent. What we're enjoying is permanent. That the strength we currently have is permanent. And poke, poke, poke. He's moving us through the fog and saying you can't can't count on that. Now, in the middle of it, he still gives us a lot of different things. Chapter 1, verse 17. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is a striving after wind. Why? For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We talked about that three weeks ago. Go back and listen to that message. Listen to a, a, a French philosopher. He's, uh, he's kind of in the, the existentialist sort of vibe. Uh, if you think of uh, Sartre and some of those guys. This is, uh, this is a guy, his name looks like Albert Camus, but because he's French, I think we're supposed to say it as Albert Camus. He writes, a, he writes a, a little paper that has become incredibly famous called The Myth of Sisyphus. Now, you, you know Sisyphus generally? Okay. (laughs) You know, Sisyphusian kind of. Sisyphus was a guy because he had tricked the gods. At the end of his story was punished with not death because he had beaten and tricked his way out of the Hades and gotten back from the land of the dead. He was punished by having to roll a rock up a hill. But right when he'd get there to the top, it would roll back down. And so he'd have to get there and he'd have to push the thing back up again. And then we'd get to the top, we'd roll back down. And it's said that the way that Sisyphus could defeat the gods by Albert Camus, if you want to read his stuff, I'll just say, man, he makes Ecclesiastes you know, read like a song. <laughs> it's it's He's, he's dark. He is so dark. But speaking of intelligence, Albert Camus would not just, you know, kind of go for an existential point of view. He would go for what he calls absurdism, which is this. It's kind of like that review that we read about everything everywhere all at once. The only way Sisyphus can defeat the gods is by learning to enjoy rolling rocks. So he can look at the gods and kind of, you know, You didn't get me because I'm having a blast. Baby, this is the way it's going. That's the best that Albert Camus can actually give you. Is absent God, under the sun. Here's my best attempt at telling you how things can be meaningful. Just enjoy the fact that it's meaningless. And invent meaning where you can get it. That sort of works. Like almost everything else the word offers, it's half-baked. It sort of works. Here's his take at it. The intelligence, he says, too, tells me in its way that the world is absurd. It's contrary, blind reason. May well claim that all is clear. I was waiting for proof and longing for it to be right. But despite so many pretentious centuries and over the heads of so many eloquent and persuasive men, I know that is false. False. On this plane, at least, there is no happiness if I cannot know. You hear his demand underneath it? I need to know something permanent. But what the preacher has told us is that everything under the sun isn't permanent. Everything about your life is forgetful. And there's no guarantee that if you get to be the smartest person in the world, that you'll have the best life because it doesn't work that way. Smart people suffer and dumb people succeed. And that is a smoke in a vapor, he says. But Camus saying, no, I have to know something. And so at different points throughout this, the preacher has given us little moments, little sort of bits of truth, little Proverbs. Chapter three, verse one, we talked about this for every time, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Time to be born, time to die, to plant, time to... It it keeps on going, right? Nothing is permanent, but there are times for things. He, in chapter 7, says, Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Which could probably be a sermon in and of itself, because it really sounds weird. How can you be too righteous or too wise? It's probable that what he's getting at is try not to attach guarantees to your pursuit of godliness or your pursuit of knowledge. If you're so smart, if you're so godly that you think God then owes you because of your brains or your righteousness, you invested way too much in that. So don't be overly committed to those things. Why destroy yourself? But be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you take hold of this. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So, despite everything he said, is he saying it's it just it doesn't matter? Live like an idiot or live like you know like the wisest person? No, 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 no. He's saying that there's still benefits, but there's no guarantees and there's no permanence to them. Chapter 10, if you want to just sort of read this, it's a whole list of things that read just like the book of Proverbs. There's little moments in here that feel very Proverbs-like. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. That sounds about right. You can kind of see the metaphor there, and you can see the ways in which that makes sense throughout the life, you know, that we live together, right? He he keeps going all the way down Um, in later in chapter 10 through sloth. The roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. So these are little gifts that he gives to us throughout the book. But he said that trying to know what's true is a permanent way of being able to make your way through life. It's it's just not going to work out. So what what does that do? What do we step back from this and and resonate with? What, What kind of song ought we to hear? Because we'll particularly hear it in others that we're talking to as well. People still know things are true. Even today, with the demand That everybody can be right and truth is equally valid? What's the one thing that's condemned? The idea that something's true. It's it's a bizarre twist on its, its own perspective, but there's nothing absolutely certain except for the absolute truth that nothing is certain, which is kind of backwards thinking. But it does give us an echo of the fact that people crave truth. And you know the God who came and said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the one who has life. He's the one who told us that this truth that he's giving to us is made manifest in the love of God, that the whole work of the Holy Spirit, and you heard this in our, 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 our confession today, the whole work of the Spirit is to reassure us of one thing, not that the wise get their payout, but that God loves you certainly. That's why the Holy Spirit is here to remind us of how incomprehensible his love is. To help us measure the immeasurable. To help us know the unknowable. What at the end of the day do you come away with? As far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much God loves me. That's At the end of the day, what the Bible tells us we can know. Jesus came as the proof of the love of God, and the Holy Spirit has been sent to nail that home. That's what we can know. The rest of this, wisdom says, take your hands off of everything but that. Because at the end of the day, the third thing that we get out of this is that despite the sun's filter, God assigns a final purpose. And you hear that in the final words. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Here's how we summed it up in the bulletin. What do we do? We've asked this question every single week. What do we do? It's this we remember that life under the sun is indeed cursed by death and all of its lackeys. However, reality isn't limited by what society sees and what society shouts at. It's only God who brings joy to our days and purpose to our life. If we're trying to sum up the book of Ecclesiastes, that's about as well as I could do it. You might be able to do better. There's a lot of commentators that have done a better job, but I think that sums up our four weeks here. Society is noisily yelling at life under the sun. And you have hope that there's something above the sun. That there's a God who made it, who oversees it. And you get to live as though your hope isn't in what you see and what everybody's shouting about. So what do we do? Three things. One, we remember that we live under the sun. So when you're feeling the effects of the curse, don't forget This isn't paradise. This isn't eternity. And God's not done yet. We're still living under the sun. Stop being so angry about the thorns and the thistles, the splinters and the impermanence. This is the way life works for now. Wise people remember that. And fools forget it. Second thing we do, though, is that we remember that reality isn't limited by what you experience here. We often talk and I often try to give different reasons that I think you ought to read your Bible. Reasons you ought to orient yourself and your soul towards God in prayer regularly. I think this is one reason for it. Because if you don't, if you don't read words of truth, if you wake up to Facebook or TikTok, If you wake up and go to sleep letting the world tell you about what's going on under the sun, you will forget and you will forget quickly. Our souls need reminders and need connections to the one who lives above it all. So we don't forget that we live under the sun, but we remember that reality isn't limited. And lastly, we remember that God has the final word. It feels right now, and I think it's going to increasingly feel like Christians in the United States that we have been put on a shelf, that what is going on and those who are speaking right now have the final word and what we remember after listening to one of the best poets go on and on and on about the futility and the vanity and the vapor of life is that when it's all done, <clears> he <throat> said, no, here's the end of the matter. God will bring everything into judgment. He has the final word. It's noisy and it's hot here under the sun. But fear him. Because that's still the beginning of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, for this two-part course that we've had, time in Proverbs and now time in Ecclesiastes, we're grateful We're grateful that we need to know at the end of the day nothing more than the fact that you love us. We're grateful that you sent Jesus as the proof, that you've given us the Holy Spirit as a reminder. And Lord, when we are fickle and forgetful, I pray that you would continue to do the work of reminding us, reminding us that we live in a world that is cursed, but reminding us that you're above it. That you're coming back for it. And that you're in the process of redeeming it even now. Lord, may we take joy today in the final truth and in the echoes that you give us every single day. May we enjoy this life until it's done. Knowing that you will never be. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion in the middle of our, our time here of what.